1: plushcare.com slash weight loss.
0: Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of I've Never Had an Original Thought with me, Becky Lee. This week, I'm joined by the exceptional Maddie Booth, who is the founder and CEO of Scrubby UK, a zero waste and sustainable skincare brand. Now, in this episode, we talk all about Maddie's passion for sustainability, about being a woman in business, um, and about the status quo and how things work in the world and how we can be disruptors in that. I had an amazing time speaking to Maddie. I found her so inspirational. And I think at times you can find me gushing over her, which I did apologize to her for. But yeah, I won't keep rambling as I always do. And I'm going to let you listen to Maddie because she's amazing. Okay, speak to you at the end. Bye. welcome back to another episode of I've never had an original thought this week I'm joined by Maddie Booth hello how are you doing yeah I'm well thank you how are you I'm good thanks so we obviously know each other from university I think I sat next to you in international relations for like two weeks and then you jetted off to Melbourne so <laughs> that was about it yeah, definitely. I had a lovely
1: time whilst I was abroad.
0: Oh, I'm sure you did. But for anyone that doesn't know you, do you want to give a brief introduction to who you are and what you get up to? Absolutely. Um,
1: I've got my fingers in a fair few number of pies, um, but what people probably know me as is the founder and CEO of Scrubby UK. Um, we are a circular cosmetics brand. How does Scrubby work? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what we are is a circular cosmetic brand. So we focus on taking byproducts, from the beverage supply chain. So that's kind of thinking about the drink sector overall and what the waste streams are of that. And we then look to how we can give those a new lease of life. And um, so we started back in January 2021. Um, so we launched just over a year ago and we focus mainly on coffee at the moment. So taking coffee from um that's leftover byproducts from cafes all across Birmingham and then upcycling them into our products. But um What you may know, I will give a bit of an intro to, we are relaunching a new product line, fingers crossed, um, by the end of July or August time. um, And that's going to be focused around the byproducts of the beer and the wine industry. So we're moving to expand the range quite a lot over the next couple of months.
0: That's super cool. I'm really excited to look forward to that. Um, And I'm sure we'll get more into that later. But the question I ask everyone to start the podcast is who or what is one person, idea, or maybe even an event that's changed the way that you see the world?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, I'm reading this book at the moment, and I literally have it over on my desk. And it's called You Are a Badass. Yeah, You Are a Badass. And the biggest thing at the moment for me, so a week ago I handed my notice in for my job um so I've been kind of working part-time as a sustainability consultant since leaving uni yeah
0: um
1: and this has been absolutely amazing but I've always known that I wanted to go into running my own business and I've been running the business for quite a long time um kind of on the side um of my what my parents would call inverted. Commerce real job. Um, but I handed my notice in because I was so ready to take this like leap. Um and I read something that literally, whilst I was reading this in my bed, like I only just bought this book maybe like two weeks ago, and it's not even very far into the book and it's already changed my life. Um and it literally says like um it's like a little quote, Do you mind if I read it. Go for uh, it. Um so it says are you really going to quit your secure corporate job in order to run a nail salon when you've got two children, a mortgage and high blood pressure? So if you new businesses succeed, especially in this economy, aren't you worried about what will happen if you're, to your family if you fail? And what the author then replies to this, that, that was a quote that she basically had when she, because it's written by her and about her, um, when she went to like leave her corporate job and go into this kind of entrepreneurial world. Um Her response is, of course Shirley is worried about what will happen to her family if she fails. She wakes up every night, seized by panic about it, but she's moving past her fear to create something she's really psyched about. Rather than dying a slow, painful death, Hanging out, hanging around the water cooler with you, whining about how dry the cake was at the birthday party your boss threw for you in the conference room last week, and I think that absolutely read to me, and I was just like, I the thing is, I absolutely loved my job, I loved it so much, but there'd be days I'd come home and just feel so unfulfilled, mm. and then I'd go into work on my business and I'd be like. Oh my God, absolutely buzzing. And then I wouldn't be able to sleep because I'd be like, oh, I've got all of these ideas and my brain's absolutely flowing. And I think when I read that, I was like, do you know what? This is actually, I need to start thinking about whether I'm putting 100% into my business because I know eventually that's where I want to be. Yeah. So if I don't take the leap now, then when am I going to really?
0: That's so true. And fortune favours the bold, you know. I'm sure you'll be rewarded for your braveness. Um, So why did you decide to start the business
1: what what inspired you yeah um gosh there was a huge number of things i think for me my first kind of idea into entrepreneurship um was when i was in my final year of uni and i started a community interest company so like a social enterprise um called warwick cup so this was at warwick uni and focused around um reducing the use of single use um plastic single use coffee cups on campus um and that for me at the time, it was just really an idea that I was really passionate about. I hated using kind of disposable cups, but I also hated bringing in my keep cup and it leaking in my bag every single day. And I am a huge coffee addict. And so I'd literally be like having three, four coffees a day and it just kind of going everywhere. Yeah. Um, and so started this up at Warwick and that was my first kind of initial idea into entrepreneurship. I didn't even realize at the time I was an entrepreneur. Um, until I started kind of going to events and people were like, oh, you're the co-founder of Warwick Cup. Like, how does it feel to be like a woman in business? And I was like, oh, I didn't even realize that was a thing. So that kind of just like fell on me. It was like an idea. I got it going. Um, and then when I was, so I was in my final year again, um, when I was kind of handing over the reins of Warwick Cup a little bit, we'd gone into lockdown and Warwick Cup wasn't really functioning anymore because it was obviously based on campus. What then I, so when I start when lockdown started in about March. I started getting really, really bad breakouts, and I, I think this was something that a lot of people faced in like lockdown. And I'm not really sure what cracked it for me, but I think it was a kind of a mix of stress, hormones, eating crap, not looking after my skin, not looking after myself as much as I should. Um, and that for me was a really big turning point because I was like, okay, so I've never faced acne before. I've always had really good clear skin um and so I was like right I really need to actually think about what I'm putting on my skin etc um and I studied at the time global sustainable development and politics so I was really focused on kind of transitioning my whole entire life to become more sustainable but what I was realizing was that the biggest area of my life that was being so unsustainable was my beauty regime so because of kind of going through acne, how it affected my mental health, kind of wanting to, inverted commas, fix my skin, Um, I was literally buying every cosmetic out there that promised to to do so, to promise to fix it. Um, And so I'd end up with about 40 to 50 products made of plastic with containing microplastics, a list of probably about 27 ingredients per product that I'd never heard of. And I really started doing my research about, what these products were doing and what the beauty industry was doing um, and how like harmful it was. And then I really kind of got into that and wanted to then switch to sustainable cosmetics. But What I found was that they're so unaffordable for a student, so unaffordable for someone even on kind of middle-class income. Um, and so there was this kind of three triple dilemma, which I now refer to it as, though having like facing acne for the first time, that personal journey and the effect it was having on my mental health the second one was kind of actually being really interested in sustainability and wanting to switch my whole lifestyle to become more sustainable. And then my final one was that affordability side. So I was looking for a product that had all of those three things in it, um, and I just couldn't find one. So then I was just like, like okay right you know what I'm just gonna start making my own cosmetics and this was literally when I was in my like uni accommodation like you can imagine not the nicest of places um and so yeah I just started making my own cosmetics and focused first of all on exfoliators because I knew that those were the ones that were containing the most amount of microplastics that were the most environmentally damaging so that's kind of where I started.
0: That's super interesting it's it's great that you've managed to find that line between sustainability and affordability because for a lot of people, sustainability is like a privilege, you know? Um, and also interesting to, to think about the way that our beauty regime contributes to the looming climate meltdown, you know? Because people Absolutely. look at their diets, they look at their transport, but I don't, I mean, maybe it's just my opinion, but I don't think many people are looking at that, yeah, the beauty regime. And it's such a big part of so many people's lives. Oh, completely. I mean, the beauty industry lives and thrives on plastic. Mm-hmm. And that's a huge issue. A lot of
1: people kind of just immediately look at the packaging and they're like, oh, let's look for a plastic-free packaging or recycled plastic. But they forget about, actually, within the product itself, there's loads of microplastics. So I think I read something the other day that was, like, in a high street serum, which is, like, a very recognisable, I'm going to say it was Garnier, and I think it was, Um, had 1.54 million polyethylene particles. And that's literally in like a serum, like that size, like really, really small product. And so it's just like the bizarre thing is that we literally wash this down the drain and we know the effect that plastic has on our oceans and has on our marine life. And I'm like, why are we still doing this? Why is this A still legal and B still accepted by our customer base?
0: Yeah, and also surely, like, does it provide any cosmetic benefits anyway? Like, surely rubbing microplastics you into your mean. skin,
1: yeah, and for, not it doesn't provide actual benefit to your skin, mm. but it provides benefit to the product. Okay. So, it what they use it use it for is increased thickness. Um, so they're actually kind of cheating you out of the product as well at the same time because. They're putting these in, um, which are really, really cheap to put in, and that's why they do so, to make the products thicker um, and to make it kind of flow better. So what you'll find, the difference between our products and others is that ours kind of need a bit of mixing with water to make them into like an emollient, whereas you'll find products on the kind of high street that you'll recognise more that have those kind of um, microplastics in will kind of just flow straight onto the face without needing any rubbing or anything like that and that's kind of the worst thing there is that that's the customer assumption that your product will be like that so it's again all about that behavior change from the customer side as well as the business side.
0: Yeah definitely I mean I can admit that I'm as a consumer incredibly ignorant when it comes to these things it's difficult isn't it to educate yourself but I think you know a massive kudos to you for disrupting you know the skincare uh, marketplace and hopefully yeah getting people to learn more about their skincare um and, and what they're putting on themselves and where that stuff's going when they wash it off and um, wh- why was it important to you that you know a circular economy is also at the heart of scrubby
1: yeah oh gosh um i think for me obviously the background i had so i went to study global sustainable development i grew up in a very sustainability related like um My whole entire childhood was all about that. So all about kind of, I mean, I grew up in a single parent family, so it was all about how to make sustainability affordable and how to make it accessible. So it's not about kind of buying really expensive sustainable products. It was about literally how can we repurpose things? How can we upcycle things? And that was kind of ingrained into my upbringing and everything that I did because... I would never see anything as waste. Like that was literally my mum always ingrained that into me. You'd never see a piece of like food, shopping, anything like that go to waste in our household. And so like my entire way of thinking and my beliefs were really around that circular economy. And I didn't even know it at the time. It was never a term that I understood at all until I went to university. Um, But it was always about that kind of okay, how can we actually live more in tune with nature, more in tune with where we've kind of come from? Um, and that for me kind of stemmed through my entire lifestyle. And when when I went to start scrubbing, I went to kind of really drill down into what products were out there, what greenwashing was happening, what kind of businesses assuming sustainability. Um, and I think the issue is that we've got to a point with sustainability is that companies can now just, at that word on things, and then the customer will assume, "Oh, okay, that's good. Yeah, I'll buy that." But it's actually about reduction, and that's the biggest thing that people forget in sustainability. It's about reducing our consumption of everything, mm-hmm. and and I think that's been the tricky thing for us as a company, kind of trying to pivot because as a product, we are a consumable. So, and we are a business. So. At the end of the day, it's about being able to grow as a business, but not kind of push onto our customers that over-consumption model. So we don't really do a lot on advertisement or anything like that. We kind of let our customers come to us when they're in need of a product that's sustainable. So it's it's been a really interesting way to pivot. And I think we've got a very different business model to others because we focus on like sustainability and a circular economy at our very core. So I haven't come into it with a skincare background or a beauty or a cosmetics background. I've come into it from being studying sustainability, going into post university sustainable consultancy, and working directly with businesses in that front. That it's always kind of been part of who we are. But we we know we're not a hundred percent perfect as well. And I think that's something that we like try to improve something every single time we have a product development. So we've got our new products, our body scrubs launching tomorrow. And with those, we completely changed um, our suppliers for our ingredients, because we wanted to bring the supply chain even smaller so that we're able to be more transparent. That's just like one example of what we do. And I think it's really important. I mean, we don't need, as a society, any more products out there that aren't actually doing good. Yeah. And I think that for me was, okay, do I actually need to launch this business? Because the beauty industry is already such a saturated market. But when we came down to it, that actually being change makers in the area and also doing a lot on education around talking to our customers about why it's important for circularity, why it's important for sustainability, is much more important than kind of just saying, actually the market's too saturated, we don't want to put products out there. And so yeah, that's kind of where we ended up.
0: Yeah, is there, um, I'm just thinking, obviously it all sounds incredible, but there's always a date. And I remember like businesses that I followed and they begin really sustainable and they have an incredible ethos at their core. And then, you know, they become extremely successful and then you start to see them cut corners or become less sustainable, or um, I don't want to name brands. No, maybe I will. No, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do it. Like I um, do it. <laughs> because the, I I follow these sorts of things online. So like you know Tala, you know um, Grace Beverly's brand. Yeah. Um, began she was very transparent, it, you know, seemed very sustainable. And then, you know, they began selling on ASOS. And then, you know, they began, they never had Black Friday sales, it was always about not over consuming. But then, you know, they changed their ethos. And that is there ever any risk in your eyes, pragmatically, that you could do that in future?
1: Yeah, um, so we actually already faced a bit of a dilemma with that. Mm. So um, about Four months ago, we got approached by a very large online retailer mm. that you may have just mentioned or may not have <laughs> just done. Um, and we basically got to a point where we really had to sit down as a team and think: right, right now we're playing in the small game. This could enable us to literally leapfrog overnight into mm. playing in a much larger game. All of us could go full time we could literally kind of move the business so quickly. Yeah. But we decided against it because at our very core, I think, I mean, it took me about four or five days to actually come to the conclusion. And I think it literally had a super snipe. I was like, okay, like, this has literally been my dream to grow the business this, this quickly. But at the end of the day, stuff like that really, it's really difficult because on the one side you've got if you make success sustainability so accessible on platforms that everyone shops on, you're actually putting products in front of people that would not necessarily shop sustainable. So they may give your product a chance and give it a go. And actually in the long run will do better because they'll get to try that product. But in the other side, you've kind of got obviously blurring your brand there, blurring your values. And I think the thing for us right now, we get approached all the time about like jumping on Amazon. And I think that may eventually be something that we do do, but only because we want to make sustainability accessible. So we want to be able to be the product that is chosen as an alternative because it is just as simple to get. It's just as affordable. There's no reason as to why our product, which is a lot more sustainable, a lot more circular, should be chosen over a kind of commercial high street scrub so it's really tricky but i I think i do agree with you in that brands like that do end up kind of letting profit override their values Mm. and that does come down to profit there's no other reason that they've done that um all kind of growth streams and i think you've seen recently that they've gone through a massive funding round and got uh, they're going to be getting a lot bigger over the next couple of months um, so that's a really tricky one. And I think the only way that that can be done well is if you're really transparent about why you're doing so. And I think that's an issue that Tala maybe had, that they don't have someone in the team that has the experience in sustainability. And I think how we're, we always kind of worry about how we're positioning ourselves, how we're branding ourselves in terms of sustainability. But I think at our very core, two members of our team have studied sustainability completely all the way through. Two of us have then gone into roles that have been in sustainability at least for a couple of years, literally focusing on that business development. Mm. So it's, yeah, it's tricky and it just depends where that's coming from. And I think it's it the transparency and honesty about the situations is the most important thing. And I think customers will be lost if you don't kind of take them along on that journey and show them why things are happening. Um, But, I I mean, I would absolutely love there to be a platform out there that does the same things that Amazon does, but in a sustainable way. Mm. I just don't think we're there yet. Um, So, yeah, we'll see what the future holds. But um, I think the majority, if we were to do anything like that, we would keep fulfillment on our side so that we have complete control. But it's just a kind of advertisement platform. So that we're equal to others, and then everything else would still be in our control. I'm not sure. I'd be very happy about sending the products to an Amazon warehouse and seeing the way that they treat products—not even just products, but obviously their employees themselves. So, Mm. yeah, it's a very interesting one.
0: I um, that was—I couldn't imagine. You know, I'm just thinking selfishly. If I got approached by that brand, my knee-jerk reaction would literally be like, "Oh my god, I'm sorted." You know. I, I, I like my absolute like a- adoration towards you for being able to think so long and hard about that and obviously make the decision that served you and the business best because yeah, I would not be able to do that. <laughs> um, yeah, it was such a tricky one, but I think at the end of the day, it comes, I mean, we always brand
1: ourselves as having. Three core values, Mm. sustainability, affordability, and honesty. Mm. And I just think, like, so early on in our journey, doing something like that would have completely lost half of our customer base. Yeah. So, yeah, at the end of the day, I think it was a short-term... Uh, pain for a lo- yeah. very long uh,
0: term. Yeah, no, you're right, um, and it's also incredibly refreshing to hear, um, like a genuine planet before profit ethos, you know, um, and not just more greenwashing. But I want to pivot slightly. How how is it being a woman in business addressed it all the time?
1: <laughs> oh gosh, um, yeah, being being a female in business is a, is a tricky one because you, uh, to be honest, mine's kind of a two part one. Being being a woman in business has had one experience and also being a young person in Mm. business has been another. And I think it's really important to sometimes reflect on that kind of cross boundary. Um because seeing if I think about like who I see as um people in the business field that I find admiring. Yeah. They are not your Richard Bransons. They're not your Elon Musk's. They're even not even your kind of big women in business. Mm. It's it's really tricky because what I found is I don't work the same as other people at all. And I think that's probably why I ended up being an entrepreneur and not being a very good employee. Mm. I mean, my work colleagues won't say the same. I'd, <laughs> hope, I'd hope I'd have them all on my side. I, don't <laughs> I think at the end of the day, like I know where my heart is with everything. And a lot of the time, business has taken away from why you really got into it in the first place. And I think for me, it's always been about that kind of guiding path and being in love with my idea, being in love with what, having the capabilities of doing what I want, bringing on members in my team that I want to drive this forward. And I think a lot of the time it's kind of taken away from that. And it kind of just go back to what the masculinity area of business is. And that's, again, it goes back to that kind of greed, profit, etc., kind of looking at companies that are all, all the time saying, okay, our turnover this year is X million, this and this and this. And I think a lot of the time that, that means for us as well, we don't really fit business models. Mm. So I remember trying to do a business model canvas, um, which is kind of like something they make you do in like getting into business basically or applying to grant funding or funding um, investors, etc. Mm. And I was actually like... I really can't put my business into this because it dumb, it like dumbs it down and it's kind of just like nothing about who we are as a team, who I am as a person and the passion and energy that we've got for kind of changing and being disruptors. And I think that was really like a big challenge. And I think that's, I mean, women in business in general, we've definitely resonated with the, the struggles of getting funding. That's a really big side. I think there's not enough done to help women get those big figures and to actually help them grow their business on a larger scale. Because what you kind of see from the masculine side, masculine side, is that they're constantly looking for that turnover, that profit, but they actually go for those bigger funding bids and they go in with a much more confident and much more higher asking price. And then you'll see kind of women going, oh, I don't really know if my business is worth that, or I don't know if I should go for that funding. And that's something that we constantly have arguments about in our team, whether we're kind of valuing the business at the right thing or hoping to go for more funding rounds, et cetera. So that's one side of it. And then the other side was just not really feeling like we run the business like anyone else does. And I think on one side, like, I mean, so in my team, we don't work for hours. We work for output. Mm. And that's something I always kind of drill into the team. If they want to leave at 1 p.m. on a Friday or any day of the week, they are literally free to. Because at the end of the day, like, we all have our lives. And I've been really lucky that I, because I am, like, let's say, in vertical month, the boss, it's I'm able to do what I want. And I want my team to have that same capabilities yes. because what you find when you give them this kind of leeway and freedom is they'll work a hell of a lot harder because they'll really have a passion for the business, for who's managing them, etc. And there's a lot more respect with that field. And I, I've never worked well working a nine to five. Mm-hmm. I mean, even in my, in my job, they let me work out as I wanted to because they knew that I just like not like that at all. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And I think the biggest thing I've learned from being a woman in business is that, you don't have to do things the way that they have been done. And there are women that are being disrupted in the field. So if I think about Tessa Clark, for example, she's probably one of the women I really look up to in business. And um, She runs Olio. It's like a food sharing network. Mm-hmm. And I think she's possibly like like People probably don't know her because she's not like in the public aisle the times. She's not an influencer. She's not this. She's not that. she's so genuine, she's so passionate and sort of so much energy about what she does, why she does it and the story behind it and I find that so much more inspiring than seeing a business turnover 300 billion.
0: Mm. So
1: it's a really interesting one.
0: Yeah it's difficult, I feel like everything you're saying I wholeheartedly agree with, it's just <laughs> at such a disjuncture with the way that things are and the status quo is so ingrained that If I told, I mean, when you were telling me then that like it's based on output and not on hours, logically, yeah, it makes sense. You know, if I get what I need to get done in the day, Mm -hmm. then there's no reason for me to have to like slave away because I feel like I have to put in FaceTime. But Mm -hmm. if I went in tomorrow and said, hey, guys, like I really have worked hard today and I'm finished and it's 3 p.m. They'd be like, what are you doing? Pick up something else, you know?
1: Yeah. That is the thing, and I think that that kills your mm. um, like passion completely. It does because a I hate being told what to do, and b I hate being I hate wasting time mm. because I think like this, this is probably really deep. But I think when you get to a bit of a mind shift around, so recently I had like someone quite close to me die, and I think it that for me was a massive turning point because I was like, okay actually it's not about I mean so what the incident happened he literally died in the workplace and I think that for me was like he was 50 years old and he'd like left his family in the morning everything was gonna be absolutely fine and then obviously you see the family come in deal with this situation and I think that is like the biggest turning point that I could possibly say has affected my work-to-life balance Mm. because there is nothing more important than, like, looking after yourself and looking after the people close to you. Um, And that stems down to people in your team. Like, I would say that people in my team are, like, some of my closest friends now Mm. because we are literally, like, a little family working together on a common goal. Mm. And I think it it does go... And I think workplaces need to be quite careful now because individuals and employees are becoming much stronger as a unity or as in their goals, in their preferences, because of this flexibility with work from home, everything that's kind of surrounded that, that they'll not actually work for companies anymore that are forcing them to come into the office nine to five, five days a week, work overtime, and put their own mental health or people close Mm -hmm. to them at kind of that risk. So yeah it's a it's an interesting one and would it be silly to kind of be a business now and to not allow that flexibility in your team that they're once used to having
0: yeah definitely i think that those sorts of businesses are will end up falling behind naturally they really will um okay uh another thing that i wanted to talk to you about again kind of related to being uh, a woman in business um is the kind of like I would call it like capitalism taking a woman in business and like chewing her <laughs> up and spitting her back out again you know the hashtag girl boss truth um that yes. we all have the same 24 hours you better work bitch oh my
1: God, yeah yeah honestly I think if we think about like what hashtag girl boss was originally mm taking it right back to I'm pretty sure it was the um, founder of Nasty Girl that Mm. came up and what she was trying to achieve when she first set out using this was kind of stepping into a role and kind of making a business that was seen as something as strong as powerful as other businesses that were headed up by males and I think It originally started with really good connotations, kind of giving women that kind of leapfrog into um, this business scene that has obviously, until quite recently, been really unachievable for women to get into. Um, But what obviously we had from that was then the kind of effects and the connotations completely changing. And it was moving towards and taken up by people in the influencer scene, in the scene that are not really let's say not really kind of where the girl boss started because did they kind of get to a place because of um as you say corporate kind of spewing out these women and making them basically female masculines? like that's that's kind of what we've ended up with like we've ended up basically with pants suits and high heels basically <laughs> difference there because I think it's kind of made it into a position where women feel like they have to act like men to be successful and I've definitely found that in kind of running a business and being in quite cor- big corporates at some point so through my consultancy like I'd be hanging out with c- quite like the global head of sustainability for Depop and other companies like this and It's really interesting because what I find a lot of the time is women are actually taking on those masculine tendencies to get power, to get kind of successful. But actually what we're forgetting is actually females are so powerful in themselves and we don't need to step into masculine roles or we don't need to have those masculine tendencies to actually be successful or be happy in our career or anything like that. And I think a lot of the time it stems back to kind of where we're positioned in society and how society is embedding those roles onto us. And it's kind of come back to like the career woman. So now what, what you'll see is that actually, obviously women are kind of having children later on in life and things like that, which is absolutely fine. But a lot of the time there's a kind of disparity between people kind of leaving their careers to then have families and it not being respected in a way. Mm. And I think it's really tricky to have that balance and also enable males in our society to take on feminine tendencies in their roles. And I think that's something as well that we really need to see because if we're going to change the landscape of business, which will have to change in the next five to 10 years, because of all the goals towards net zero, because of all the goals to circular economy, you'll find that sustainability, this is a bit of a tangent, but sustainability has just been named the best best sector to get into as a woman to leapfrog into much, much higher roles. Mm. But what I think that's really great and I absolutely love that. But what I'm actually thinking is the kind of behind the scenes of that and why it's happening is because, Males aren't seeing sustainability and the circular economy as something that is worth being in. So it's not profitable. It's not X. Actually, in reality, it's a hell of a lot of profitable and it will become. But women are jumping on that because they know and they see the long term picture. Whereas a kind of masculine tendency in our society is, no, this works right now. We're going to work on this high, tino- high turnover, et cetera, etc. cetera. So it's a really big disparity there and I wish that well I, I hope that over the next couple of years we'll see those more feminine tendencies move into um higher roles in society that doesn't mean to say that it will be I want women at the top of every single role mm. it means I'd like men to also have those feminine tendencies kind of leadership wise management side and also kind of business strategy side
0: yeah I'm having two streams of thoughts based on what you're <laughs> saying the first one is that I can't believe it was staring me in the face that sustainability is so gendered. It's incredibly gendered and I never come to that fact. Um, but also that sustainability is very much in alignment with femininity, as you're saying, with like yeah. uh, slowing down, with yeah. um, just all of the, yeah, the feminine intensity of care, of like that like natural maternal desire to care about others, to care about the planet. Um, and the masculine doesn't really lean to that as much so of course women end up dominating those sustainability spaces and I think you're right I think the the time you'll start to see more men move in is when the motive becomes profit again which is kind of disheartening but I don't know do you agree
1: yeah I do I do and I went to an event recently which was sustainability live and it was a two-day conference in London and what I found and what was terrifying was that in the big companies, you've got people that have been pushed into a sustainability role because they need to have a chief sustainability officer mm. because the company's earning over X billion or etc. And what a lot of the time was happening was these like males in, in these high roles that had gone from maybe. Chief operating officer to now chief sustainability officer or something like that. So going from a really high role to another role that they're assuming is high, but actually that has zero knowledge in this area. And something that absolutely almost made me cry at this conference was a cry of laughter. Was um, but also really really sadness. Um, The I'm not going to say who it was, but she was the global head of sustainability for a certain company that were absolutely huge probably in almost every single country in the world Mm -hmm. um she asked me what scopes were so what the net zero what the carbon scopes were so what scope one two and three she said oh I've heard this a lot in the sessions this morning do you know what it is and I I I literally I stood there in shock for probably about five minutes before I said nothing Mm -hmm. um and stuff like that is so scary because Mm -hmm people like this are running sustainability in a company that is responsible for really, really damaging impacts Mm. on our society, as well as not only who's in the company. So that employee engagement side, they're going to completely lose their employees in terms of retention if they're not moving forward on this. Mm. And that was really scary. But I think Again, it comes back to that that knowledge gap, that skills gap that we still got in society around sustainability and women moving into these careers because yes, it does relate to relate to who we are as individuals. Um, and I do think it's quite nice in a way because we can relate to people in our fields a little bit more. What you'll fit see in the sustainability field is that. Everybody really is there because they care. Mm -hmm. And you will get those bad cookies that are there because they've been pushed into into the job um, because of corporate kind of changes. I hope over the next kind of five to 10 years that those will be phased out and people will be expected to kind of at least have a base knowledge before they actually get pushed into those roles.
0: Yeah, I mean, you'd hope say the planet is burning. So we don't really have a choice. (laughs) Which also people don't seem to be confronting as head on as they should be um but that's definitely a a conversation for another day um I wanted to ask you as well about like obviously you started your business during university um and now you know you've been running it for over a year um what sort of pushbacks setbacks did you come across and how did you manage to be resilient
1: I think I probably have at least a setback a day (laughs) um that's not a (laughs) joke um, so i probably split them between like personal product and business. Mm-hmm. So the personal side, I think goes back goes back to a lot about the kind of relationship to being young and being a woman in business. A lot of the time when I first started, again, it goes back to me saying I didn't even realize I was an entrepreneur. Um, and that for me was a really big struggle trying to navigate the business field when I knew that I didn't resonate with who was supposed to be the big shots in business like the people to look up to in business I felt I had absolutely nothing in common with like my values my passion my goals or who I was as a person Mm. either and so I just wasn't sure that I fitted into like what running a business actually was and I think that took me a long time to get over Mm. um, and to kind of what we'd call like imposter syndrome and um, to get over that and to actually realize actually no I can take up space in this field um, and I can take up space in the business scene and I think I've had a huge amount of support on the way that's really helped me work out where I want to be work out what we want to achieve with the business and um, and that was from uni that was from kind of growth business support hubs a variety of different groups and I think without them that kind of personal journey wouldn't have been like wouldn't be where I was now and I wouldn't be as confident kind of talking about what I want to do talking about what we want to achieve and and then on the other side you've got the kind of um product side so for us we have changed an enormous amount, even since launching. So it took us about six months to eight eight months to get the product ready to launch. And then after that, it took us about six to eight months to get it right. So we launched with a product that we weren't really happy that with, but we wanted to see what the reaction was and then kind of take our customer feedback and then actually change it. And I love this um, saying from the founder of LinkedIn, actually, that was, if you're not embarrassed by the first product that you release or the first service you release as a business, you've launched too late. Oh. And I think that's always stuck with me because we just launched it and we're like, OK, let's just see what happens. Mm. We did all of our research, obviously, and knew that hopefully it would be a good product. Um, and then we changed our packaging. We changed our ingredients. We've changed the product literally completely over the first eight months that we were launched. And then we were happy with what we had. And then we decided to launch a new product line. And again, we made changes. And then the edits that we've made with this one, we then made to our um, first line. So it's constantly changing. And I think that's the beauty of startups. It's the beauty of businesses that are small enough to kind of make those changes overnight. Mm -hmm. And I don't need to ask anyone what we're doing, et cetera. And, And then the last one kind of comes down to like the business. And I think it goes back to like not running in a way that others have. It's meant that we've had to do stuff a lot slower because we haven't had that kind of seed funding, investor funding rounds, et cetera, that typical startups go through. We may eventually go through that, but we know that we're not ready for that yet. And we know that we're not 100% there with our values, what we want to achieve in this kind of field before we do that. We don't want to give our customers any sort of blurred lines with that. And it again goes back to that honesty line.
0: Wow. Um, that's amazing. I'm like thinking like if you ever do go through an investment round, any money that I can give, I would love to invest in you. I like wholeheartedly believe in you <laughs> as like a CEO, as a business owner and also your business. So if it ever comes to that, let me know. Cause I'll throw whatever I can in your way. Amazing. I promise. And <laughs> <laughs> um, before we wrap up, I remember you talking about, um, your dissertation topic i think you did a presentation yeah. like right before one of the lectures it was like please come along to it um why don't you tell everyone about it because it's super interesting
1: oh gosh yeah um it feels like a lifetime ago <laughs> um before lockdown imagine those days i know before covid existed um so i was really lucky so um I chose my degree at Warwick because I knew I didn't have to write the kind of 10 to 15,000 word dissertation. Mm-hmm. So, what you may not know about me is that I'm dyslexic. So, I really struggle with writing long essays. I mean, that did not help for doing politics, to be honest. Um, but I loved politics, to be fair. <laughs> um, but what that meant for me was that I actually could do a project. Mm. And I'm very much more a hands-on person. I like to actually achieve something and kind of make a difference. Mm. So what I chose to do instead of the kind of typical 10,000 words was to do a project. And global sustainable development, as you can imagine, sustainability is an overarching umbrella, has all the sustainable development goals underneath it. So that's everything from no poverty, no hunger, gender equality, reduce inequalities, down to like clean air, clean water, Mm. Etc. So I could choose any one of these 17 Sustainable Development Goals mm-hmm. to do my dissertation on, and I've been really fascinated with the relationship of gender equality mm-hmm. and how that stems through every single part of our life. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, the area that really interested me was the dis- like kind of power disparity. And how that related in domestic abuse or trauma um, and the kind of power imbalance between our male and female counterparts. So I chose to do my um, dissertation on um, the kind of effect of um, abuse on women um, and how that affected gender equality as a sustainable development goal. And for the project of this and trying to make it something which actually had an impact I held an art exhibition, so I'd been really fascinated. I'd done art at A level, been fascinated to art for years and years and years, and I knew how important art was in the kind of in kind of breaking taboos in society. So it, it plays a huge role in that political scene, um, as well as that kind of reducing inequality scene. And it's something that everybody can resonate with on some level. And I think that's the biggest important thing for me because I spent a lot of time working directly with victims of abuse and um, so I work with RSVP in Birmingham which are the rape and sexual violence project as well as a load of different charities across the UK and what I learned was that art was a way in which everybody could connect so we had people that we were working with all the time that didn't speak English for instance Um, or were too uncomfortable and too nervous and too scared to talk about what they'd been through, Mm. that language was something that was really difficult for people to associate and to kind of express themselves using language. So we used art a lot and we used sculpture a lot as well to actually explain what we've been through, how we're feeling, how it's affected us, etc. And so I chose art as my medium. So I I hosted an art exhibition and I held it in um, the Royal Prior shopping centre, like right in the middle of everybody walking past. And that was the biggest, the most important thing for me, to hold it in a place where literally you cannot avoid it. And I think with art, that's such an important thing because it's all about spreading that message kind of producing that taboo and by holding it in the shopping center it enabled the most randomest people to interact with something that they would never get to interact with um, and especially in Leamington so you've got a very middle-class very rich town and kind of forcing them to like uh, interact with something like this on a large scale was really important so we partnered with um, I think 35 artists from all across the UK and quite a lot of these, I'd say about 56% were actual, were um, like trauma victims of some sort, whether this was mental, physical, emotional, etc. And I think that was the most important thing is I wanted to give, I didn't want to kind of create, I mean, I did create art myself, but I didn't want to take away from other people's voices and other people's experiences because those are so important yeah. in terms of that reducing quality side. Um, So I've partnered with loads and loads of artists and and brought this together in a really public space. Um, And we had a kind of opening night where we let the charities come in and talk about what they do. Um, We let a couple of our art group come in. Um, So it just enabled a really public discussion of how trauma and abuse can be a huge barrier to achieving gender equality. And it may seem removed a little bit from sustainability, but under that, I mean, obviously 50-50 of the world, I mean, is women. And so that gender equality thing for me is so important because it affects every single other one of the same development yeah, goals. Okay. Everything from uh, the poverty, the hunger to infrastructure and everything like that. And I think it's really, really important one. And And what as well we did a lot about was about the kind of intersectional feminism so about kind of the race impact the ageism impact um religion and all of these areas and how these all intersected in this movement towards gender equality so it was absolutely fascinating um fortunately, we got to launch it the first week of first week of um, march there we go get it right Um, So it was was a uh, alive for three weeks before lockdown, thank Mm God. I'm so glad because I would have been absolutely distraught if all that effort I put in had gone to waste. So we were really, really lucky in that respect.
0: That's incredible. And I also think projects like them are just so much more impactful than someone sitting there and writing an essay you know, as you traditionally do. I don't know if you took, um, there was a course in Warwick. It was like a module. It's called Reinventing Education. I managed to take it in my third year and it literally changed my life because the course director, she was like, if I'm reinventing education, we're not going to sit here and do things in the traditional way because that wouldn't make sense. And if anyone writes me an essay as their final project, you haven't understood any of this. Um, she was like I wish I I wish I didn't have to give you a mark but like naturally I do um but listen here's the guidelines and do whatever you want do whatever you want as a form of assessment and the amount of creativity and the things that people put into the project the time the effort the passion that they had behind it was transformative because people really cared and they didn't just you know about I know Paulo Freire writes about you know students as cups and mm-hmm. teachers are just like pouring you know knowledge into this like empty students when people are already whole and um, yeah and it sounds like that you got to experience that through your free you know your Absolutely. final project and so much more impactful and I wish that yeah a lot of other people had the opportunity to do that yeah
1: and I think it's institutions like Warwick that are that need to be leading the way mm. because institutions like Oxford, Cambridge, Durham, all the kind of Russell groups that are focused so much on achieving the first, achieving the two ones, getting those dissertations in, producing groundbreaking research that's writing mm. um, is really not the way things are. And I just want to share with you this really, the quote, like I have it written down on literally everything that I do is, we can't solve problems. We can't solve our problems with the same thinking we use to create them. Mm. And I think it's a huge connection there between education and sustainability mm. because it goes back to having that creativity. Um, and that's what creates entrepreneurs, it's what creates change makers, innovators, anything like that. You won't find one entrepreneur that's not had some sort of education or some sort of life changing whether it's even just reading a book that's changed their perception Mm. on things as if you attending that module Mm. um and on the way in which we learn the way in which we like educate others etc all needs to change in this way to be much more inspiring and much more creative
0: definitely i hope that i see more of these changes um across the board but I don't know. I'm a bit of a cynic at the moment. So, but you know, you've restored my faith in humanity. So I thank you for that. Um, I want to take any your time. So where can people find you? Where can they find Scrubby?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so just in general, if you want to find more information about sustainability, etc., um, connect with me on LinkedIn. So Maddie Booth, my like title is ecopreneur. So I don't like the word entrepreneur. like <laughs> for now because we're trying to make difference here we're trying to make changes um, but Scrubby is spelt with um, two U- two B's and two E's um, .co.uk so that's our website or um, with Scrubby UK on socials. so we're on everything from Pinterest to TikTok to Instagram etc
0: oh my god I'm going to check out your TikTok account <laughs> right now we're um, straight after this thank you so much for spending time with me oh hey, you're so welcome i absolutely love to chat to you Thank you so much again to Maddie for speaking to me on this episode and thank you for listening to another episode. If you'd like to reach out, you can find me on Instagram at Becky Lee but with an X, so B-E-C-X-Y-L-W or also at an OG Thought Pods. Please also don't forget to rate it five stars. I know a lot of you have already and I appreciate it so much. So thank you again. Share it with your friends, share it with your family. Um yeah, and I will speak to you next week. Have a lovely time in the meantime and yeah, happy to hear your thoughts. And that's all I have to say. Okay, a lot of love. And now I'm leaving. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway. Like European linen